Hi, everyone. Welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boiler. So when we recorded last week's episode with Greg Sargent, we weren't actually sure how the Kevin McCarthy shambles in the House of Representatives were going to shake out. Uh, It was sort of a look ahead at what to expect out of a MAGA-controlled speakership, no matter who ultimately won, on the assumption that the mass of Republicans would never stand up to the Trump wing. That turned out to be a pretty good assumption. Uh, Since then, McCarthy locked down the job. He sold whatever was left of his soul for it. All the different members and hanging with me through all those different votes. But I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think anybody should doubt his influence. And so now we get to see what having a Republican House under McCarthy's nominal stewardship, but really under MAGA control with five votes to spare actually means. We also get to see how Democrats respond, react, parry in order to exploit the GOP's ineptness and to protect the country against the harms Republicans are threatening to cause And also, hopefully, to make Republicans pay a price for re-embracing this MAGA wing after voters just rejected it for the third consecutive election. So that, in theory, encompasses a lot of stuff. It, It will mean parliamentary cleverness on the part of Democrats in the House. It'll mean uniting the Democratic caucus against the Republican agenda in the hopes of dividing them, and hopefully figuring out other ways to divide Republicans uh, or else make them keep reaffirming this corrupt bargain they've made where they handed control of the House over to people who want to use it for the most blatantly corrupt purposes. And we should be clear-eyed about just how corrupt the bargain is. The purpose of the rebellion against McCarthy wasn't entirely about corruption, but corruption was the centerpiece. And there probably wouldn't have been a rebellion at all if this group of right-wing Republicans wasn't hell-bent on abusing House power to penetrate and sabotage criminal investigations of Donald Trump and of themselves. Uh, And McCarthy all too happily promised them a Benghazi-style committee, and that committee will claim to have authority to access the inner workings of those very criminal investigations. So here's a big question I have about that. Setting aside how corrosive it is to the rule of law, does the new Democratic leadership see it as a political opportunity? Has there been any rethinking on the part of leadership since the midterms of the political value of having opponents who are so corrupt? These are the same Democrats who managed to lose a seat, uh, a New York House seat to George Santos. So I think it's fair to reason that they haven't always exploited the corruption of their opponents to maximum benefit. But what will they do now? The new Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, is a product of the New York State Democratic Party, and that same party may have single-handedly cost national Democrats control of the House. And a lot of what's to come actually turns on what he specifically thinks about politics. Our guest this week uh, should be able to help us sort some of this out. Mondaire Jones is also a New York Democrat, a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and a political commentator. He served in the 117th Congress, where he watched this new status quo take shape from the insurrection through the 2022 midterms, and he's here to share his insights. Thank you so much for being on the show, Congressman. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So to start, I'd love to hear what was going on in your inner monologue last week during the meltdown in the House. Just how did you respond to that? Boy, um, it's been both sad 
on a personal level not to be a member of the 118th Congress because I miss my colleagues and I miss the important work that I was doing. But if there were ever a time to, to wonder whether the House of Representatives is a place for good people, look no further than what Republicans have done with the place. I mean, they couldn't even do the first order of business, which was elect a speaker from their own caucus. And I think that bodes very poorly for uh, any legislative progress we might we might want to see over the next two years. So before we get into the next two years, what's one thing about Republicans in Washington and then secondarily about Democrats in Washington that you didn't fully appreciate until you were a member serving among them? When I got sworn in, I didn't imagine that there would be January 6th. And what we have seen since has been shocking even to me. I was unaware of just how low my Republican colleagues would stoop in order to preserve their own reelection and to preserve Trumpism. Uh, It is really chilling to watch two-thirds of your colleagues on the Republican side vote to overturn a free and fair presidential election after nearly dying alongside you hours earlier uh, because of the big lie. And so it's, it's, a, it's an indictment of our present day political system, specifically um, the Republican Party and you know the role of money in politics and partisan gerrymandering and so many other facets or deficiencies in, in the way that we do elections here that allow extremists to continue to get reelected. Um, with respect to my Democratic colleagues, I have been very impressed with our ability to come together to deliver for the American people. I say this as someone who was just part of the most productive Congress in modern American history. Um, and, and still, I had thought that after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, there would be more of an appetite to advance the bold reforms that people like myself uh, had been advocating. Uh, not least of which expanding the Supreme Court of the United States, for example, which because of the work that I and others did, a majority of Americans now agree with. Uh, But of course, no one has made the case better than the far right 6-3 majority itself. And and yet only a few more people signed on to my bill with Jerry Nadler and Hank Johnson called the Judiciary Act to add four seats to the Supreme Court. So I am devastated that there is not more of an understanding, even among Democrats, uh, about the urgency for bold relief while we still have the power to do those things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bracket that answer because I have a question, a few down, that I want to uh, attach it to. Um, but let's get into um, like how we got here and, and what it means for the next at least two years. Um, After the insurrection, you have the whole 117th Congress, as you said, very productive legislatively. Um, And then you have the Dobbs decision. A sweeping, deeply consequential decision from the nation's highest court. And against that backdrop and the backdrop of the work the January 6th committee did, um, and also against the backdrop of inflation, um, Democrats overperform 
in the midterms. They do better than history suggests they should, better than uh, than the polling averages suggested they would, um, and managed to actually grow their Senate majority by one. They lost a few seats in the House. I think the margin is five, which is the number of seats they lost in New York. Do you think it's a fair knock on the New York Democratic Party to say the party there cost national Democrats control of the House? I think that the New York State Democratic Party bears some responsibility for the loss of the House to Republicans this past election cycle. However, recall that it is the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, that has primary responsibility for getting House Democrats elected and reelected in tough seats. So I think more attention should be paid to the failures of the DCCC, um, even as we call on the New York State Democratic Party to be of some use to both federal and state candidates who struggled uh, when they should not have in the deeply blue state that is New York this past cycle. And, and the governor was one of those people who, uh, whose election was way too close for comfort, I think, um, given what should have been a much larger margin of, of victory in the state of New York over Lee Zeldin. So there's a subtext here, obviously. The, the DCCC chairman last cycle was Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney. Sean Patrick Maloney, uh, uh, his machinations uh, contributed heavily to the fact that you're not serving in the 118th Congress. He then, after the redistricting and switching uh, districts, lost his election. In New York, Democrats lost disproportionately to other places where they lost less or even, even other states where they won. How do you square the critique of the DCCC and Sean Patrick Maloney, that is, you know, like losing his own seat, losing a seat to George Santos in New York, <laughs> with the fact that the party overperformed nationally. I think it's telling that my colleagues in more competitive districts than the one that I was representing, even as it was newly redrawn, and the one that Sean decided to run in, uh, won their respective elections, almost to a person, with, with some exceptions. Um, but meanwhile, in the state of New York, uh, you know, folks couldn't get it together. I think, you know, we see the failings of the DCCC most acutely in the, um, the non-opposition research uh, with respect to George Santos, which would have been an easy get for a Democrat, uh, had half of what he lied about been exposed prior to the November election. Uh, obviously, the, the chair's own decisions uh, cost us a seat because I would have won my election in New York's 17th congressional district uh, for a variety of reasons, not least of which I had already been representing 70% of that district. So those are two seats that we know for sure <laughs> would have been held by Democrats uh, in this 118th Congress, uh, further narrowing the majority that Kevin McCarthy and Republicans have uh, in this Congress. Um, and, you know, yes, there were some issues in New York that were specific to New York. I think bail reform in particular uh, was, was a hot topic, but it's something that Pat Ryan 
was able to overcome in the district north of my own uh, that is even more competitive than New York's 17th congressional district. So I think there's, that's not much of an excuse. Have you replayed what happened last week over in your head, like stipulating that you're right, that at least two of the seats the Democrats lost in New York were winnable, to how, how the speakership fight would have turned out if the majority had been three votes instead of five? Absolutely. <laughs> you, you I, know, would McCarthy, could McCarthy have won? I mean, I think he, I think he won by a vote. So It, it would have been even tougher. Um, and, and who knows at that point if the majority, uh, if the margin is more like one, two, or three, whether Hakeem Jeffries would have been able to peel off Republicans like Nancy Mace and Brian Fitzpatrick, who, you know, had had enough and were willing to support someone moderate for the role. Um, it, it's it's probably not a very useful exercise to play out other <laughs> Other than to the extent that people are finally held accountable in New York, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and, well, also there's a there's a podcast we get to we get to navel gaze all we want. <laughs> <laughs> so they say. Okay, so uh, walk me through a nickel version of how the New York situation unfolded from redistricting through the election, because my own memory of it is becoming fuzzy, but. I recall early in the redistricting cycle, Democrats nationally being really excited about the situation in New York, where the the state seemed like it was outwardly saying, look, Democrats want to end partisan gerrymandering, but we're not going to unilaterally disarm. And we're going to use New York as a, as a way to balance out what Republicans are trying to do nationally. Um, and, and that was the hope, was that New York might end up actually helping to save Democrats from losing the majority or from being wiped out. Um, but then the courts got involved and then, and then there were, um, you know, the, the race by race failings. So what, what happened in a sort of sequential way? And then what can Democrats do from the redistricting through things like you were talking about bail reform to make sure that, uh, to get those seats back in, in the 2024 election? Well, I think the first thing that happened was a few years ago when Andrew Cuomo, who was then the governor, failed to disperse 20 plus million dollars that had been allocated by the legislature to uh, to get out the census and to make sure that people were completing it. We only lost a seat by 89 census uh, forms. Uh, and, and that is kind of what created a high stakes situation going into the 2022 election cycle, knowing that we would no longer have 27 congressional districts, but rather 26, and trying to figure out how to redraw the map in New York State to account for that loss of a congressional district. A number of representatives found they no longer live in their districts and others will have to run against each other. CBS 2's political reporter Marsha Kramer says one consultant calls this the congressional equivalent of the Hunger Games. The state legislature didn't get behind its own uh, referendum on the ballot to make it easier for the Independent Redistricting Commission, which is what we have in New York State, to, to reach consensus. And that's because the legislature always intended to overrule the Independent Redistricting Commission. That got us to a place where um, the chair of the DCCC and leaders in Albany in the state legislature 
got way too greedy and drew a map that the New York Court of Appeals said uh, violates the state constitution's anti-gerrymandering provisions. And you had my district that clearly was drawn in a way as proposed by the state legislature uh, that that violated the the gerrymandering prohibition. And you had districts like what they drew for Jerry Nadler, which also looked just unjustifiable on the map that did the same thing. And so New York Court of Appeals struck it down. These were all Democrats, by the way, all judges appointed by Andrew Cuomo, but a majority in a 4-3 decision uh, struck down that map anyway, kicked it back to a trial court, which a Republican judge who appointed a moderate Republican special master, according to the New York Times, which did a profile on this guy. And and this is this is what we got as a result of it. And the, and the result, by the way, has also been the loss of... Uh, the majority in the House, when New York was supposed to be like the saving grace. So if, if Democrats are stuck with that map in 2024, beyond the bail reform issue that you alluded to, well, in addition to the bail reform, what what, what can they do to, to win back the seats that were lost? I think having good candidates in all of the districts that we are trying to flip, candidates that know the district, ideally candidates who are, you know, recognized in the district by the voters uh, and candidates who are going to raise the money required in these extremely expensive races to get their message out and to compete with the deluge of super PAC money that's going to be spent by the Congressional Leadership Fund, a super PAC that's aligned with Kevin McCarthy and others. I don't think that bail reform will be as much of an issue, but also we need to talk about how safe the Hudson Valley and Long Island actually are. And uh, and we need to obviously talk about the importance of addressing crime and talk about specifically how Republicans have really abdicated their responsibility to address crime as it has occurred in a variety of contexts over these past two years. This is a Republican party that is just created a select committee to in- interfere in the criminal investigations of the FBI and the Department of Justice. And that, you know, has largely not supported any attempt to hold people responsible for the harm that they did to law enforcement on January 6th, to say nothing of individual members of Congress uh, like us. Is there a, is there a good way um, to, for like, what's the right way for Democrats to deal with the crime issue, apart from, you know, you want crime to go down just because, of course, everyone should want crime to go down. But in the context of a campaign where the you're, you're sort of shadow boxing less against what the conditions on the ground are than against like agitprop from the right wing about crime, what's the what's a uh, good way for Democrats to uh, compete? on the crime issue without validating what is ultimately an effort to scare and mislead people about the safety of their communities? Well, I think it's education about crime and what the actual trends are in the state of New York and elsewhere. It's also going on offense and making sure that people know that the folks who are driving the rise in crime around the country uh, are... Republicans because of their refusal to deal with the gun violence epidemic in this country, 
because of their refusal to um, hold people who would incite political violence accountable within their own party, um, to hold Republicans accountable for their enabling of the political prospects uh, of a guy named Donald Trump um, and and so on and so forth and and not waiting to be attacked for our positions on crime, but rather, you know, making sure that we are leading the conversation as we should be. Right. Less apologizing for a perceived state of affairs that may or may not bear any resemblance to reality and more like, who are you to, to criticize us on crime when you're flooding our streets with guns? That's right. Something in, something in that neighborhood. Maybe a good way into that discussion is to talk about the George Santos debacle specifically, a sort of segue from New York politics into national politics. We turn now to Capitol Hill and the growing scandal surrounding newly elected New York Congressman George Santos. The Republican has already admitted to fabricating key details about his background, including where he worked, went to college, and even his religion. Um, like it seems pretty obvious that if Democrats had made a bigger stink over, over the things that they knew at the time, I mean, obviously they've learned more about the fraud George Santos has perpetrated since then, it would have doomed him. I mean, the interest in how much lying this guy did um, has been enormous. The kind of thing that um, if it had been aired out with a, an aggressive communications campaign during the campaign would have not just doomed Santos, but maybe had spillover effect within the state. What's the what's the lesson there about how Democrats should um, run against, compete against, be adversarial towards their opponents when they happen to be running against somebody who is part of this corrupt Republican apparatus in a district that they have no business winning? I think you have to have strong candidates who are not relying on outside organizations to do their work for them. And I'll add to outside organizations, the media, right? So if I, if I can't get the New York Times to pick up a relevant story on my opponent, I'm putting that in the TV ad myself and I'm making it newsworthy. And I'm certainly not relying on other organizations to do opposition research for me in a high stakes election like what we saw in that district, which was going to impact control of the House of Representatives. Um, I think it's making sure that we are having, uh, that we are making personnel decisions um, and have accountability structures in place to ensure that we have all the information we need um, to, to run the best campaign that, that we can as and, and support the best campaigns um, in, in the context of the DCCC structure. And I think it's also making sure that we are pushing back on this false narrative that somehow Democrats are soft on crime. Because as I mentioned earlier, that's simply not the case. I, I read the DCCC oppo sheet on George Santos. And it had a lot of the stuff we now know about him in it, but it was sort of buried. Um, and it didn't have the most scandalous stuff. I mean, let, let's be clear. The, the most interesting of the allegations 
and the most scandalous are that the man lied about where he went to college or having gone to college at all, potentially, that he lied about his job history, um, that there's no evidence that he earned the income that he reported. The fact that he created a a charity um, to deal with animals that turned out not to be a charity is not nearly rising to the level of of the other stuff on the list. And and the DCCC did not catch those things. The reason it interested me that that even the stuff that the DCCC did on Earth was placed on a lower tier in their little uh, like dossier on him than his his positions on Social Security. If you were running against somebody who had standard fare, regressive Republican policy issues on prescription drugs and Social Security, but was also like a, a complete fraud, like from the catch me if you can school of frauding, defrauding people. What would be more central to your pitch to voters not to vote for that guy? Like the the criminality or he's going to be a vote for Kevin McCarthy's position on on prescription drugs? So I reject the idea that, that there has to be a choice as between the two, um, because in these districts in particular, there are a lot of financial resources. Um, and to the extent that a candidate himself or herself cannot deal with all of this, there are outside groups who are paying attention to the messaging <laughs> that uh, that those candidates are, are are doing. You know, there's a reason we have red boxes, for example, on on our websites for uh, for third parties to to look at what candidates are are trying to convey to the electorate. Um, look, I mean, as important as it is to educate people around the Republican plan to cut Social Security and Medicare, the stuff that's going to get people talking at the dinner table mm-hmm. is is like is also like, can you believe this guy lied about literally everything? Right. right. <laughs> you know, there, there are a number of Americans who understandably, given everything that they struggle with throughout the day, don't want to talk about politics all day, but are interested in or, or horrified by people who are just abjectly terrible. And who are interesting to talk about. It gets into this question of how sophisticated the average voter is about how bills become laws and blah, blah, blah. But like a lot of the, I think, typical issue-based messaging that happens in election in elections becomes pretty familiar, right? The the promises Democrats make on economic issues or the warnings that they offer about what Republicans will do sound pretty similar from election to election. And if you know how the whole system works, you can reason that, well, like, I don't want prescription drugs to get more expensive, but I'm going to vote for the Republican anyway for these reasons, because I happen to know that the president is a Democrat and he's not going to sign a bill that will make prescription drugs more expensive. And, you know, you you can sort of reason your way out of of an appeal on kitchen table issues on the basis of what's happening in the rest of the government outside of this one race. But you can't 
reason your way out of like one of the candidates is a public servant with a clean record and the other steals from babies, right? Like when, when that's clear to the electorate in, in a district, it's a, it's an ironclad fact for that race. Um, that's sort of like, uh, you know, a gift to whoever happens to be the non-corrupt candidate. And uh, it, it just seems to me... There, there are a lot of Republicans who are very uncomfortable with George Santos and who would not have voted for him in the 2022 election. And so, the, you know, these issues of character, you know, as a baseline... Are, very, are still very important to voters. I mean, not, not as much as they ought to be because Donald Trump came too close to getting reelected in 2020. But, you know, there's no evidence that Donald Trump created himself out of thin air, you know? I mean, there, there are a number of things that he's lied about, but this is someone who is just being introduced to the electorate who has lied about every aspect of his life. That is of great interest to people who might otherwise be willing to support a Republican out in Long Island in November of 2022. Positively Dreadful is brought to you by HelloFresh. You've got New Year's goals, and HelloFresh is here to help you achieve them. Skip the grocery store and take control of your time and budget with delicious restaurant-quality recipes delivered right to your door. If you're looking for an easy way to eat well and save money this year, HelloFresh is a great place to get started. It's cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% cheaper than takeout. With over 35 weekly recipes, they have the options you're looking for to help you achieve your goals. Choose calorie smart and carb smart recipes, or even customize select meals by swapping proteins or sides, upgrading your proteins, or adding protein to a veggie dish. HelloFresh's latest line of meals is fast and fresh recipes featuring robust flavors and filling portions that are ready in less than 15 minutes. My last HelloFresh box included a seasoned chicken with roast vegetables dish and a pork tacos dish and a meatballs dish. They were all delicious, but it's not just that the recipes were tasty. They're good portions, which means you aren't hungry, but you also don't overeat. And they teach you tricks in the kitchen that you can use anytime you need to whip yourself up a meal. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Dreadful21 and use code Dreadful21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Dreadful21 with code Dreadful21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. All right, let's transition to the, uh, the national scene. Hakeem Jeffries, is he the right man to lead the Democratic Party under divided government in 2023? Hakeem is enormously talented, uh, specifically as a messenger. He is going to be disciplined uh, in the way that I believe the House Democratic Caucus will be in the minority. I've said before that it's easier to be the leader of, of the caucus when you're in the minority because the contrast, especially between this Republican Party and Democrats uh, is a contrast that is easily discernible for the average American who's paying attention to politics. Um, And there's going to be more unity because the ideological differences within the House Democratic Caucus don't matter nearly as much in the minority 
as they do when you're actually trying to uh, pass legislation in the majority. Right now, they're trying to block bad legislation from getting enacted into law, um, whether it's a national abortion ban, as proposed by the Republican Party, uh, or efforts to gut the IRS so that billionaire tax cheats can continue to evade responsibility for you know doing their part in the way that working Americans have to do. In the in the last Congress, um, I I took note of Jeffries for two reasons. One was as an impeachment manager, where I thought he brought the skills that you just alluded to to bear really well. We are here, sir, because President Trump corruptly abused his power, and then he tried to cover it up. And then separately, is he struck me as sort of like the the real voice of the leadership's. Uh, antipathy toward uh, the progressive wing, or at least elements of the progressive wing. Is that a fair read? Did you feel that? Or was that just me overreading certain tweets? (laughs) You know, I think a lot of what you're alluding to happened in the Congress that preceded mine, right? So that would have been the 116th, uh, when I think, you know, there were some tweets out of the House Democratic Caucus account um, at certain staffers and about certain elected officials who identify as progressive. Um, You know, look, I I think a lot of these issues will become clear if and when Hakeem is the Speaker of the House. Um, But, you know, he is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and he got unanimous support from the House Democratic Caucus on 15 consecutive ballots last week. So uh, I look forward to to seeing how he leads uh, these next two years, because I think that will impact what happens in the next Congress as well. So let's talk about some things uh, he can do to get the better of Republicans as minority leader. Um, so you alluded to this new committee that Republicans set up, which uh, which is sort of designed to subvert criminal investigations, including possibly of members of that actual committee. Uh, I heard Dan Goldman, who's the new congressman from New York, characterize it well on the House floor this week uh, as a committee to obstruct justice. My Republican counterparts can dress up the subcommittee with a menacing name, but let's call it what it really is, the Republican Committee to Obstruct Justice. But so beyond using monikers like that regularly to 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 keep that facet of the committee in the con- in the public consciousness how how should the fact the republicans actually set up a committee to obstruct justice affect how democrats do their opposition politics like what can democrats do besides pillaring republicans for creating this committee to make th- the committee itself a liability for the gop they can start by using the same language that Dan Goldman did to describe it. I've seen five different versions of what the committee ought to be called, uh, as described by uh, by Democrats, and none of them are as good as the committee to d- obstruct justice, which is precisely what this committee is. So I think some messaging discipline around that. I think putting people on this committee who are quick on their feet, who are effective communicators, and who relish a fight is critical to making sure that the opposition party, (laughs) the minority of Democrats um, in the Congress, are going to be pulling their weight, I think, on these committees and educating the American people 
about what a sham it is. That is there is there one member that you absolutely would want on there to sort of be the Democrats, Jim Jordan or whatever, uh, sort of serving as a bulwark against what they're trying to do to the to the, these criminal investigations. I think someone on the Judiciary Committee who will, I'm sure, someone who has served on the Judiciary Committee, I should say. I mean, it is a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, we, as members of the Judiciary Committee, are familiar with Jim Jordan's antics. Um, the, the craziest of the Republicans, um, with few exceptions, serve on the Judiciary Committee. And I think people who have experienced dealing with that level of crazy is, is really important. Uh, we've got some great people on the committee. And, and I don't, you know, th- there's no one person who jumps to mind, who comes to mind, who's going to be um, the, the most effective. I will say Jamie Raskin can't serve on the Judiciary Committee because he's the ranking member of the Oversight Committee. Uh, so he's out of the running for that. <laughs> there are some some great folks, you know, I mean, you've got David Cicilline. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it, it, we should be thinking about who the ranking member is going to be, who's really going to be leading the charge for the Democratic minority on the subcommittee. But but he is someone who comes to mind. I keep thinking, you know, Republicans are have promised to exact revenge for uh, against Democrats for removing Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from their committees for for, you know, for saying racist, do, saying and doing racist things, um, you know, people who deserve to lose their committee assignments, they're going to get revenge on Democrats for that by uh, stripping um, Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from the Intelligence Committee on on the basis of completely flimsy pretexts. So I've been thinking, like, should Democrats answer that by trying to get those guys onto the committee to obstruct justice to give... Or does that just is is that something where Republicans would just turn around and and uh, you know kick those two off in the, in the same way that you know well not the same way but in a similar way that Nancy Pelosi refused to put insurrectionists on the January sixth committee. So I don't think Adam would want that job. I think Adam's going to be focused on running for the Senate in California, um, and you know after being the chair of the Intelligence Committee probably will look at it as kind of as demotion to, to, be, the, to, to be the ranking committer committee uh, ranking member of, uh, of the of a judiciary subcommittee um, you know I, I wouldn't be surprised if Eric Swalwell did end up on that subcommittee he's got experience as a prosecutor he served on the judiciary committee and he's going to be looking I think for more to do now that he's off the intelligence committee and he like he seems genuinely just out of patience with how Republicans do business. That's something that I've come to appreciate about Hakeem Jeffries since he became minority leader, or since, I guess, before he became minority leader, since the speakership fight, um, that more than the outgoing leadership team, he, uh, he doesn't try to conceal... He doesn't mince words. Yeah, how beyond the pale he thinks of this behavior, um, which, you know... I guess you lose the art of subtlety in that, but to me, it's sort of key to how. I think it's a generational thing, Brian. Yeah, talk about this because I because I I feel like to me, if you want people to understand that something 
has gone really wrong, you should just talk about it a lot you, as you opposed should, to yeah. hide behind. I'm, I'm very disappointed and blah, blah, blah. It, <laughs> it helps to be able to convey that emotion. And I think for the, the, the top three leaders, leaders in the, in the prior Congress on the democratic side, you can get to a point where you've, you've been in so many different Congresses that you're used to working with a Republican party that no longer exists uh, in, in this decade. Um, and so it is refreshing to, to see that kind of emotion from Hakeem Jeffries and from others. I, I, I was one of those people who also often pointed to how certain behavior by my Republican colleagues is beyond the pale. I don't use the word moderate to describe any of the House Republicans. I, I think it is more accurate to say that there are lunatics and that they are cowards. Um, and we see that as recently as a few days ago when, uh, you know, to a person, the, the members from districts that Biden carried in 2020 um, who are Republican voted to gut the Office of Congressional Ethics, who voted to, um, you know, gut the IRS so that billionaires wouldn't have to pay taxes. I mean, this is really extreme stuff. And it's not what they ran on, which was lowering costs for, for working people. They just added, they just tried to add to the deficit. Thank God the Senate is not going to take up that legislation. What about the debt limit? What can Jeffries and the Democrats do uh, n- now that Kevin McCarthy has made his deal with the far right to protect the country from their threat to default on the national debt? I, I think it is educating the American people about what is happening and how terrible it would be if America were to default on its obligations and the consequences of that default, you know, some of which are unclear because there's no precedent for it. Uh, But we do know that, you know, there would be repercussions for Social Security and Medicare and for other entitlement programs. So, you know, the the minority, the, the Democratic minority now needs to to build a, a PR campaign around this to make it really difficult for Republicans to to default and to demand crazy things like cuts to Medicare and Social Security and other programs um, in exchange for just, you know, allowing America to honor its obligations. And is this a campaign that would be mainly directed at the kinds of Republicans who just won in New York, you know, people who maybe want to try to get reelected in 2024, um, but are are cross pressured because the their party is dragging them so far to the right, or is this sort of like a just a, a national campaign that just makes sure that you know the the places where people get their information are talking on a regular basis about how Republicans have promised in September to hurt the country unless. Democrats agree to Medicare cuts or whatever. I, I think it's a national campaign that will definitely trickle down into these swing districts. The DCCC should be focused on making sure that the people uh, who are the electorate in, in these Biden districts that are currently being represented by Republicans are aware of what is happening. 
and how devastating it would be for our economy and for uh, the lives and livelihoods of, of everyday people in this country. And of course, the, sen- the Senate is going to have more to say because there's an actual Democratic majority in the Senate uh, and, and the White House uh, will also have a significant role in this. So earlier I, I mentioned I would come back to it and you, you had said that you were disappointed when after Dobbs, Democrats didn't sort of uh, rally around uh, more more aggressive ideas for for fixing the democracy and for confronting Republicans like expanding the courts, for instance. Um, here's a related question. Why didn't Democrats moot the debt limit in the lame duck? Was was that really just a Kirsten Cinema Joe Manchin thing? Or is there more happening in the party to to inhibit them from doing uh doing something like that that we're not seeing? I had the privilege of of being at the leadership table these past two years. And I know that there was an appetite to deal with the debt ceiling among leaders like Nancy Pelosi. Um, Now, I think at least one person in in that leadership structure at the time made a a public statement uh, that might be at odds with completely getting rid of the debt ceiling. Certainly the president did that at a press conference. Um, and what he says still matters to Congress. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I do think it, it it ultimately came down to some folks in the Senate who would not have been willing to um, to, to deal with that. But, but Democrats in the House stood ready, as we did on so many other occasions in which we passed legislation through that chamber, uh, to deal with this issue, uh, as we had with so many others, only for must, most of it to be blocked in the Senate because of the filibuster and approximately two individuals uh, named Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema who were unwilling to to play ball for the American people on a host of important matters. So then last question, what can the party do, the leaders, the, the people who recruit candidates, the whole apparatus do, to better constitute itself going forward so that it it's more of a bulwark against this sort of predatory GOP conduct, the takeover of the courts, the debt limit hostage taking, so that so that the the party is is better wired to uh, push back against those abuses. I think a lot of what we are seeing is a function of our broken democracy. We need better people in Congress. It is why I've been such a proponent of campaign finance reform, so that more working class, diverse voices who feel the urgency of an economy that does not work for everyday people are elected and are not going to allow themselves to uh, become captive to the pharmaceutical industry, for example, in the way that about a dozen of my colleagues did uh, in the fall of, of 2021 as we were negotiating the provisions of Build Back Better. Um, folks who are not going to allow, uh, you know, precedent like the Jim Crow filibuster to deter them from passing voting rights legislation, understanding that that is far more important uh, than some, you know, arcane procedure of accidental origin um, to to continue to exist. Um, And we, of course, also need to make sure that, that we are ending partisan gerrymandering so that we get more moderate voices to Congress 
rather than extremists like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan, who, who coast to victory despite being outside of the mainstream simply because they prevailed in their Republican parties, in their Republican primaries. All of these things and more are part of the Freedom to Vote, John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. It should be the first thing that Democrats pass in January 2025 uh, when we hopefully take back the majority uh, in the House and, and maintain our majority in the Senate and, of course, keep a Democrat in the White House. Congressman Mondaire Jones, thank you for spending so much of your time with us. Thank you for having me. Two quick notes of appreciation after speaking with Mondaire Jones. First, for the candor, which you don't often get from members of Congress, even former members of Congress, when they're asked about the inner workings of Capitol Hill and their colleagues. Second, for what he said about why the generational difference between the new House leadership and the previous one matters. Nobody with a healthy psyche should want to be on war footing all the time. But honestly, just take a look around. It really is one party that threatens to harm the country after it loses the presidency. One party that systematically lies about elections, whether that's to restrict their opponents from voting in future elections or to attempt coups. It really is one party that's excited by the idea of purging federal law enforcement and reconstituting it with partisan loyalists that aligns with foreign autocrats and tries to emulate them and encourages them to interfere in our domestic elections. That's not your imagination. That's all real. It's been this way for years now. And it makes sense for the leaders of the other party to want them to pay a price for all of it. And an important step in that direction is not keeping well-earned disdain bottled up for appearance's sake. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Olivia Martinez. And our associate producer is Emma Illich-Frank. Evan Sutton mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Fotopoulos.